Well, have you ever considered that the answers we give to particular questions have implications on our lives? Perhaps some of you have been driving on a vacation trip. As you're going somewhere, Google Maps takes you way off. It's happened to me this week a couple times. And you pull over at a gas station, you walk in, you talk to the store clerk, you say, I'm trying to get to this place, can you help me get there? Their answer to that question, of course, will either help you get to your destination faster or cause you to be even more off course. Perhaps you've borrowed your parents' car and as you're going out for a little joyride, you accidentally bump the door against another car, leaving a small scratch. Now you think, well, it's unnoticeable, nobody will ever be able to see this. So you come home, you don't tell your parents, and then a couple days later, one of your parents walks in and says, do you know where this scratch came from? Well, don't be deceived. How you answer that question will determine if you ever get the keys again. <laughs> I think about a couple days ago, as my wife was looking for something in my car, and she pulled out an empty Reese's wrapper. She walked into the house, had a scowl on her face, and said, honey, you know, in one of those weird tone of voice, we're like, what's going on here? Honey, um, what's this? Holds up the empty wrapper. Now, do not be deceived. That may seem like a simple question, but the answer to that very question determines the fate of my life. <laughs> Our answers matter. And today we look at an account in Luke 23 of the last day of Jesus' life before he died. And as we look at this account in Luke 23, we will answer three questions, three of the most important questions we will ever answer. How you answer these questions will determine your identity, who you are, your purpose, why you live, and the fate of your very soul. Three questions, all from Luke 23. So we begin in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. The scene is set. Three men all on their way to a death sentence. Well, who are these men, we might ask? The first two of the men are described as criminals. In the ancient Roman world, the death sentence was only supplied for those who were lower class criminals, slaves and enemies of the Roman state. The violence these two men show in Matthew 27 and Mark 15 give us a little glimpse of the wickedness in their hearts as they vile Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. But among these two wicked men, these two criminals, is a third man, a mysteri mysterious man, that we must ask the question, who is this third man with these two criminals? And to do this, we must look back at the scene before the one we are now in. So if you'll turn with me in Luke 23, beginning in verse 18. Who is this third man? The Bible says, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. 
He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they ask, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This third man among the two criminals is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, regardless of whatever you think about Jesus, we all must agree that he is a towering figure over all of history. One historian put it this way, if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? I mean, either either way you look at it, Jesus is inescapable. Chances are you probably know one or two people that claim to have a relationship with him. Any town you drive through, practically, you'll find a church where, like this one, Christians gather to learn about Jesus and even to sing songs to him. But this all seems a little strange, doesn't it? Noted that this Jesus lived more than 2,000 years ago. And so this leads us to ask the first most important question. If, if Jesus is such a towering figure over all of history, if, if so many people give their lives and their worship to him, then, then the first question must be this, who is Jesus? Who is he? And to answer this question, we must look at a source that includes details about him. A source that records what eyewitnesses heard and saw when they were around him. We need a source that gives accounts of what he did, what he said, and who he was. In other words, we need the Bible. So the question is, how does the Bible answer the question, who is Jesus? Well, I think it answers it in two ways simultaneously. First, the Bible says that Jesus is God. All of the Bible points to this fact, that Jesus is the Son of God, the the sinless one, the very image of God, perfect in all of his ways. The, The Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi all promised to one day send a king, a Messiah, God who would come and save the people from their sins. Jesus then in the New Testament is revealed as this very king. Jesus himself testified to this. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Earlier in John chapter 8, verse 58, he made the audacious claim, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. The apostle Paul would later proclaim this to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. You know what this means? It means that right at this very moment, as I speak to you, Jesus sustains the whole universe, everything. Even your very life. The reason why you have breath in your lungs right now is because of him. And yet, at the same exact time, the Bible teaches us that he's a man, just like you and I. Paul writes in Philippians 2, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in verse 7, that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Do you know what this means? It means that Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty. When he didn't sleep enough, 
He was tired. When the Roman guards place the thorns into the skin of his scalp and drove the nails in his wrist, it hurt. He was human. God, the creator, the great I am, became a man. And it is Jesus, the God-man, that is recorded as being led away to be put to death with two outlaws. The very one who formed each of us and gave us life. The one who knows every hair on your head. The one who hung every sky and the star and knows them all by name is now being led on death row to die with criminals. But for each of us to know fully who Jesus is, we must ask now the second most important question, and it is this. What happened to Jesus? What happened to him? And to answer that question, we come to verse 33 of Luke chapter 23. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Crucifixion today doesn't mean much to the Western world. It's not practiced anymore in much of the world. In many ways, it's been Hollywood eyes so that we can watch it on a screen and walk away unmoved. But crucifixion in the ancient Roman world was nothing short of brutality. German scholar Martin Hingel has written extensively on the topic of Roman crucifixion. At the outset of his book, titled Crucifixion, he described this punishment as, I quote, barbaric form of execution of the utmost cruelty. Why? He later writes, crucifixion would include some kind of flogging beforehand, and the victim often carried the beam to the place of execution where he was nailed to it, with outstretched arms raised up and seated on a small wooden peg. From there, the executioners were given full reign. Other ancient sources confirm the brutality of crucifixion. One source wrote about his experience watching it. He says, some executioners have their victims with heads down to the ground. Some impale their private parts. Others drive spikes through their ankles. The victim is hardly recognizable, covered in blood from their flogging wounds. Soon they become food for birds and picking for dogs as they slowly die. Before the cross, John 19 tells us that Jesus was flogged and beaten. History tells us that many who were flogged and beaten before crucifixion never even made it to the cross because they bled to death. That's how brutal these beatings were. And yet those beatings were the very thing the Son of God took. The Old Testament prophet prophesied in Isaiah 54 that Jesus' appearance would be so marred you would not even be able to recognize who he was. Can you even fathom that? Jesus, as he carries his cross to Golgotha, bleeding profusely out of his back from being flogged, as people mock him as he makes his way up the hill, is then 
laid down on the splinter wood, his back exposed, possibly the muscles in his very back exposed from getting beaten so bad, and they place his body on the splintered wood and scrape it up against the wood. They then stretch out his hands and place his feet on the bottom of the cross, take large stakes and drill them into his wrist and drill them into his feet. They then lift up the cross as Jesus now hangs, has to lift himself up to even get a gasp of air and they lift him up on this cross for all to see. Can you even fathom that? Here is the Son of God, the maker of all things, who's now hanging upon a splintered tree, bleeding to his last breath. And yet, in the midst of this, in the midst of such intolerable pain that you and I can't even imagine, he practices what he preached. He told his disciples in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So as he hangs upon this cross, facing incredible pain and torment, verse 34, he prays. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is praying that the people that are right now rejecting him, reviling him, and even killing him might experience the forgiveness of his father. What grace. But notice not only did they crucify him, verse 34, and they cast lots to divide his garments. What does this mean? One commentator said, right as the hang, the Jesus, the Son of God, hangs upon a cross, a casino breaks out at his feet. They cast lots for his garments. In Corrie ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, where she describes her experience in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II with her sister Betsy. She recounts the time when those who were in the Holocaust, those who were in the concentration camps would often be suspect to medical inspection at random. They were told to strip of all of their clothing, to be in a single file line as they walk through past grinning guards to doctors to inspect their bodies. She records her experience by writing these words. I quote, I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how the soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. Friday was the recurring humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect hands at side position as we filed slowly past the grinnings of staring guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Nor could I see the necessity of for the complete undressing. But it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that another page of the Bible leapt into life for me. 
he hung naked on the cross. I had not thought, I had not known. The paintings in the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth, but this I suddenly knew was only the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at that time itself, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned towards Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me in line, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey. And I never thanked him. Oh, Corey. And I never thanked him. I fear that sometimes we make so light of the Bible, we forget this actually happened. Here's the Son of God the maker and sustainer of all things. He holds your very life in his hands. He knows more about you than you know about you. He hung the stars in the sky, knows every hair on our head, hung the planets into motion, and yet now he hangs naked on the cross for all to see. Have you ever thanked him? What was Jesus doing in that moment? He was wearing the shame you and I deserve to wear in front of all. The one who owns everything is now stripped of everything. They crucified him, they clothed him in shame, and then, verse 35, they reviled him. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And all of this was happening to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. On that day, Jesus Christ was reviled and rejected, left alone on the cross in the middle of two sinners, while those around him mocked him as he hung naked, nearly lifeless on the cross. And the question we must stop and ask now is why did all of this happen to Jesus? Can I tell you, it is not because you're the center of God's universe. 
The reason why this happened to Jesus, the reason why he was flogged to the point of death, the reason why he carried the cross to Golgotha, the reason why they scraped his back against the splintered wood and drove spikes into his hands and his feet so that he would hang lifeless while they mock and revile him is because it took the infinitely costly death of the Son of God to repair the dishonor that our sin has brought upon the glory of God. If you do not think your sin is costly, oh dear friend, look at the cross. Because the cross is what it took to vindicate God's glory. Oh, even the little things that we say are little sins. Do you know the Bible speaks nothing of a little sin? Because all sin nailed him to the cross. And in the middle of such chaos and commotion, the second thief speaks up. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man, who was previously reviling Jesus with his partner in crime, is now rebuking his fellow partner in crime. He reminds this criminal that there is a vast difference between them and Jesus. They are guilty. He is innocent. Yet they suffer the same punishment. And then the man utters one of the smallest prayers in all of the Bible. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here is a criminal who has made a wreck of his life. This criminal who was known for lawlessness, a proud man, a reviler of God, now sees himself in a way that he has never seen himself before. A sinner. And in the same exact moment, he sees Jesus in a way he's never seen him before, a righteous king. And notice the brokenness of this man Remember me. Notice he does not say, Jesus, forgive me. No, 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 because my sin is too much. Just remember me. I'm sure that in this moment, as the Roman guards stand around, the other criminal is hanging upon a cross, the bystanders are watching these three men be crucified. I could imagine that in that moment, all of them thought this man had gone nuts. A king. I mean, a king on a chariot with a huge palace would make sense. But a king on a cross? What king gets crucified? And then Jesus says these words, verse 43. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Charles Spurgeon said of this verse, this convert was the sample of the rest. What he was saying is, is that you and I are not much different than this thief. I mean, think about it. All of us are dying. Not one of us knows the day or the hour with which we'll breathe our last. This man doesn't know when he's going to die. He just knows he's dying, and so are we. We're all sinners. Like this man, we have all disobeyed what God has called good, and we have celebrated what God has called sin. We're all sinners. And most of all, we're all helpless. I mean, the, the Bible is clear. Sin is not something God just looks past. Your sin demands the judgment and wrath of God, and it hangs on your head. Friend, you and I cannot pull ourselves from underneath the wrath of God, the judgment of God, any more than this criminal could pull himself down from the cross. We're all helpless. And yet, we must wonder, how is it that Jesus can say these words to this wretched man? How is it that Jesus can can look him in the eye and say, today you will be with me in paradise? I mean, think about the folly of this. I mean, if you're just standing by watching this happen, you would think, sure, the criminal's a fool, but Jesus is more of a fool. Today you'll be with me in paradise? Do you not know you're hanging on a cross dying? And then as we read the rest of Luke 23 and verse 46, we find out that he dies. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died. How can a dead God forgive sin? Which leads us to ask the third most important question we'll ever answer, and it is this. Where is Jesus now? How you and I answer this question determines everything about us. Everything. You get it slightly wrong, get it slightly wrong. You're totally wrong. Where is Jesus now? In 1966, Time Magazine's cover, article cover, read this. Is God dead? Question mark. There had been many people, secular theologians, liberal theologians, who thought, eh, we've talked about God long enough. It's now time to move on to another worldview. So they proposed the question, is God really alive? I mean, this isn't a new view. In, in the 1900s, early, probably late 1800s, Frederick Nietzsche, who was a German philosopher, lived. He proclaimed the death of God. In one of his parables, telling the death of God how he died, he then talks about the implications of God being dead. In other words, what's it matter to you and I if, if God is alive or dead? He wrote this. God died under our knives, and who will wipe away the blood from our hands? 
With what water can we cleanse ourselves? What are our churches now but tombs of God? In other words, he's asking, if if God is dead, what are you going to do with your sin? Who can forgive sin? And, And if God is dead, the Christian faith is a hoax. The church is a waste. Now you say, well, that is far off bad theology. Can I tell you the Apostle Paul agreed? 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14, he wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, listen to this, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he is saying is if Jesus is still in the grave, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, though Jesus promised to this criminal on the cross, today you will be in paradise, sounds great, but it absolutely means nothing if he's still dead. It's worthless. But not only that, I mean, think about the implications for our lives if Jesus is still in the tomb. The Bible is worthless. My sermon was a waste of time. You coming to this place, you're wasting your time. This church and others like it that proclaim the gospel ought not to exist because all their truth is based on a hoax. If you're a parent and you're trying to raise your kids to love Jesus, can I tell you, you're making a total mockery out of your children. If you're a student and you're trying to live out the gospel where you work, And at school, so that people might see Jesus through you, can I tell you, you're a fool. My dear friend who is wrestling with the claims of Jesus, trying to figure out, is this really true? Can I tell you, just go home. And Christian, in the words of Paul, you are of most to be pitied. Oh, you are a fool for believing the gospel if Jesus is still in the grave. But here is the good news. The cross isn't the end of the story. Now don't get me wrong, the cross is in many ways the apex or the climax of the story, but it is not a period after the cross. My Bible does not end at Luke 23. In Luke chapter 24, recorded three days after Jesus' death, 
beginning in verse one. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Because he, after all, he's, he's still in the grave, right? He's dead. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Well, where is he? I thought he had died. Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Oh, my dear friends, I come and I proclaim this glorious truth, this glorious news to you today. There was not a tomb that was deep enough. No, there were not grave clothes that were strong enough. No, there was not a stone that was heavy enough to keep Jesus Christ in the grave. He's alive. So where is Jesus now? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, alive. The bloody Savior's arisen King. Now what does this mean for you and I? Oh, the implications are multiple. They're huge. Think about an illustration from the very Bible. The book of Acts records the life of Stephen, the, the first Christian martyr who was stoned to death. And the Bible says that as these stones were being hurled at him, before he died, he looked into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Now that's quite interesting. Because in all of the New Testament, whenever we see Jesus in heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why is he standing? I think it was in effect for Jesus to welcome Stephen into heaven. It was as if Jesus was standing at the right hand of God the Father, watching Stephen die for his faith, and him saying, Stephen, in a few moments when you are dead on earth, you're going to be more alive in heaven than you've ever been. When she, because Jesus is alive, we have hope beyond the grave. Death isn't the end of our story. D.L. Moody, famous evangelist of the 1800s, once said, soon you shall read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe it, because in that moment, I will be more alive than I've ever been. In the final moments of his life, he said, earth recedes, heaven opens. If this be death, it is glorious. Only the Christian faith in the gospel and a risen Lord can do that. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus proves that there is hope beyond the grave for all who repent of their sins and trust in him alone. And because Jesus is alive, you and I, like the criminal, can come to him with all of our sin, knowing that he lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death that I deserve. He buried my sin in the grave and rose again so that when I come to him and say, oh Lord Jesus, here is all my sin, will you forgive me? He will look at you with full assurance and say, you are forgiven. And when we receive this forgiveness, we can be assured that one day when the Lord brings us home, we will stand beside this now redeemed, forgiven criminal, and we will sing forever, hallelujah, 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 the Lamb has overcome. Oh, friends, the only remembrance of sin in heaven will be the scars that Jesus bore to remind us that the only reason we are redeemed is because we placed our faith in him. Can you even fathom the wonder of that truth? 
John Newton once said this towards the end of his life. He said, when I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see people there I did not expect to see. (laughs) The second wonder will be to miss many persons whom I did expect to see. But the third and greatest wonder of all is to find myself there. Jesus died bearing the full weight of the punishment your your sin and my sin deserves. But that wasn't the end of the story. Though it was Friday, Sunday was coming, and he rose from the grave to give us full assurance that all those who place their faith in him are not to be pitied, rather, but to be mimicked. My friend, if you're here today and you're wondering, how is it that I could receive this forgiveness that God offers? Can I tell you it is not by cleaning yourself up? Think about the man on the cross. What could he have done to earn salvation? I mean, all of his life had flashed before his very eyes upon the cross, all of the things that he had done. He had reviled Jesus just moments before the cross. There was nothing he could add to his salvation. That is because the gospel tells us that when we believe in Jesus, there is not one thing we add to our salvation. One day we will come before glory, and when God looks at our life, he will see Jesus' righteousness. And one of the glorious truths of the Bible is that when we see him, we will be like him. Can you fathom that? That this very criminal is robed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so can be true of you and I when we repent of our sin and we come to him by faith. My friend, I don't know what circumstance you're in, what trial you're facing today. Maybe you came in with a cold heart of worship, indifferent, apathetic. Can I tell you today, the gospel gives us a reason to sing, does it not? There is nothing that can make a dead sinner sing like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, no matter what circumstance or trial you're in today, you have reason to rejoice because Jesus is alive and well. I once saw a t-shirt walking through an airport. On the front, it said, God is dead, signed Frederick Nietzsche. And on the back, it said, Frederick Nietzsche is dead, signed God. (laughs) He's alive and well. So we praise him. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you that the gospel is true, that all those who place their faith in you, like this man on the cross, can be redeemed sinners. Lord, we long to see your face. The one who died for our sin, we can't fathom the punishment you received at the cross. The fact that God the Father, you turn your face away from your son. Oh, the depths of our sin and the riches of your mercy. So as we sing this song, we remember that where are you today? You are glorified in the heavenlies. You are a scarred Savior. You are a risen Savior. And you, by faith, are our Savior. And so we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.